This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Rachel Campos-Duffy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Many Senate races are close right now as midterms approach, but polling shows one race is tight in what many consider a pretty red state now. But partially because of previous data missteps in Ohio, the Republican Senate candidate says he's feeling pretty good. Do we have the task of ensuring that people know who Tim Ryan is? We absolutely have that task. And I think that we're executing it well. Uh, We'll continue to execute it well. And because of that, I think we're going to win this race. And I think we're going to win it comfortably. We speak with Ohio Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance. I'm Dave Anthony. The Supreme Court is back at work on new cases with a new justice. And the same old claims on the left that it shifted too far right. It's not surprising that the court has gone down in polling. It's been the unrelenting target of legal experts and media. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. As we get closer to midterms, we've been focusing on a few Senate races. The balance of power, as you know, means high stakes. The GOP needs just one to tip things. But as we focused on races like Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, that balance of power also means the GOP needs to maintain what they have. So, for example, Republican Senator Ron Johnson's Wisconsin seat has been heavily scrutinized as polling had shown the Democrat, Mandela Barnes, in the lead for a bit. The latest Fox News poll has Johnson back on top. Fox News special report anchor Brett Baer notes what may be behind some polling shifts toward the GOP in some races. Republicans are hitting that again and again on ads against Mandela Barnes, against Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, uh, specifically on crime. And it is really moving the needle in those two races to the point where Republicans in Wisconsin feel very confident about uh, Ron Johnson's chances. And as Republicans fight to keep what they have, there is also a bit of a focus on another seat as well, as polling reveals a tight race in Ohio. Senator Rob Portman is leaving, and as he does, the state has become more red. The Real Clear Politics average of polls has Republican J.D. Vance up over Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan by just a little more than a point. Ryan has spent part of his campaign talking about China and making things in America, telling a reporter at a union rally in Lorain, Ohio recently. No, we're not running as a Democrat or a Republican. We're running as an American. It's time we get back to that. We remember we're Americans first. We need to build stuff here. We need to, the great American middle class to, to, to be established here again. And we need to dominate the industries of the future. And while, yes, polling is super tight, a Cleveland.com article from last week about the race notes polls have a recent track record of undermeasuring Republicans support in Ohio, and Ohio political analysts and pundits note as much as well. While Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said over the summer if Republicans don't take the Senate, it may have been due in part to a candidate quality issue, the McConnell-linked Senate Leadership Fund has spent millions to boost the Republican candidate's campaign. You know, one, I feel like the race is going really well. J.D. Vance is the Republican Senate candidate in Ohio. You know, unfortunately, the country's not doing very well. You know, we're letting violent criminals out of prison. We've flooded the United States southern border. Uh, with a lot of illegal fentanyl, and we have a terrible inflation problem. 
And so that frustration, I think, means a lot of people in Ohio are looking for a different direction. And so I'm, I'm the guy who's providing the different direction, and my opponent's the guy who's providing a rubber stamp for the Biden administration. So I think that message is pretty straightforward, pretty clear, uh, and that's why we're going to win, and I think we should win comfortably um, coming down the stretch here. You know, really, all we have to do from now until Election Day is tell the truth. So it's not a different strategy. It's not a different plan. Mm. Our opponent has tried to run as far away from the Biden administration as he can, and our job is to remind people that he is not the moderate that he pretends to be in his TV commercials. He is, in fact, a rubber stamp for Biden and Pelosi. And so that's something we have to do. We've been doing it, but we have to continue to do it. And I think that uh, we'll, uh, we'll be successful and uh, not worried at all about November the 8th. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about how you're differentiating, because last time you and I spoke, you had said, you know, Tim Ryan can talk all about making things in America and being tough on China. But in the end, as a congressman, he's voted for the president's agenda, like you just said. But I imagine in these uh, weeks since we've spoken that, that you've added to that. What are you most trying to highlight as the, the differences between you two? Well, I think there are three big issues where I represent a pretty different direction, I think a radically different direction from my opponent, and also from the Biden administration. And I, I try to remind both our own voters, but also the National Republican Party, you know, we can't just be against things. We can't just be against the Biden administration. We have to be for things, too. And we have to let people know how our policies are going to make their lives better. So uh, let's just tick through those three big issues, right, on inflation. I think we can really rein in federal spend, also open up the American energy sector. We'll drive prices lower for consumers that will make people much more prosperous and, and hopefully the load of the inflation crisis we've had over the last year. Uh, the second thing is we're going to do really big things at the federal level to make it easier for police officers to do their job and also to make it easier to lock up violent criminals. Uh, and if we do that, I think our streets are getting a lot safer. We're going to see the murder rate, which has been going in the wrong direction the last couple of years, uh, start to go in the right direction again. And the third thing is we're going to close the border. Uh, we're going to build the border wall and really pass some legislation that empowers Border Patrol to keep us safe. The Mexican drug cartels have basically used that southern border as the world's drug and sex trafficking capital in the world. And because of that, our country is less safe. Our people are suffering the terrible effects of the fentanyl crisis. And we're going to get that thing under control. And I think on all those issues, if you want somebody who's pro-border security, pro-police, pro-tamping down on inflation, I'm your guy. And if you want somebody who's pro-status quo, then Tim Ryan's your guy. And I think that that debate is pretty clear. And because of what we're going to win. We've talked to some other Republicans about this whole conversation about candidate quality. We've heard Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell reference that. Um, when I asked Senator Rick Scott, as the head of the NRSC, about that issue, he listed off a bunch of new Republican candidates, so not incumbents, that he thinks are qualified. And when he mentioned you, he specifically said, they made a movie about the guy. <laughs> um, but, spe but specifically about that movie, he said, um, about your life experience around addicts, and that you could really add something to the conversation about the opioid epidemic. I think you are addressing it somewhat with the border, but what could you do or would you do as senator with your life experience to talk more about drug addiction, specifically opioid addiction? I understand the cartels bringing things. That's that's one thing. But once Americans are addicted to something, you have a, a level of experience that unfortunately many Americans have. What, what could you do as senator to sort of address that? Yeah, I, I really think about this, you know, having grown up and seen addiction in my own life as both a supply and a demand problem, right? You have to cut down 
on the amount that people want to do drugs. You also have to cut down on the supply of the drugs in our communities, which, like you said, is where my views on the border and, and tamping down on the fentanyl coming into our country, that's the supply problem. We're going to cut down on the supply of drugs in our communities. And the second thing is you've got to make sure that once people uh, want to take the first step on the road to recovery, that there's actually an option available for them to do so. I've seen in my own life where you, know, you want somebody to get better and they want themselves to get better and they're finally ready. You know, a lot of families have this debate with people who are addicted to drugs. You need yeah. to go to rehab. You need to take the first step to treatment. And then sometimes people are ready to take that first step to treatment and there are no options available for them. Right? There aren't enough beds at a local treatment facility. There aren't enough resources going into the mental health services. And I think that's something we can really do much better from the federal level. Uh, make sure that when people are ready to take that first step to recovery, there's an option available for them. There's an option available for their families. I think that's how you try to, over the long term, reduce the demand for drugs in the first place. Let me talk to you about Ohio. Um, the CEO of, of Intel had said out loud um, before the CHIPS Act passed that he might take and expand his semiconductor factories, I think in Germany, he said, instead of Columbus, Ohio. Um, and that was if the CHIPS Act didn't pass. Would you have voted for the CHIPS Act as Senator of Ohio if you'd been in, in that position? Yeah, I certainly would have. I, I think it was a good piece of legislation. It wasn't perfect, and there are all these little things that you could nitpick about. But at the end of the day, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And the incredible amount of job opportunity that that facility is going to bring, yeah. it's going to bring a lot of opportunity to our people. Uh, it's also, I think, going to solve a national security problem for our country. We can't let you know China and countries under the control of China control the semiconductor manufacturing world. Um, a lot of our next level, next generation military equipment, a lot of our critical pieces of the economy require semiconductors. They require computer chips. Right. And um, us being at the forefront of that industry in Ohio, it's not just a job program. It's also something I think is going to make the country a lot safer. So is that a piece of, I mean, as much as you push back on the Biden administration, is that something that, you know, you look at and you say, OK, I don't agree with most of this president, but that was that was solid. Yeah, Biden certainly deserves credit for signing it. I would say that Portman, uh, the senator that I'm, I'm hoping to replace and obviously have been endorsed by, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that legislation. I know that there were a lot of negotiations over certain provisions and Portman really stuck with it and made sure that the legislation got over the finish line. I also have to say our, our governor in Ohio, Mike DeWine, deserves a ton of credit for it, too, because... Mm. You know, he was the one really working with both Senator Portman, but also Intel right. to ensure that there was a package, both from the state of Ohio, but from the federal government that made that facility uh, make business sense. And so it really was all around a team victory. But absolutely, Biden should have signed it. He did sign it. And I'm happy that he did. Um, let me ask you, this past weekend, a since deleted tweet from CPAC read um, that Putin announces the annexation of four Ukrainian occupied territories. Biden and the Dems continue to send Ukraine billions of taxpayer dollars. Meanwhile, we're under attack at our southern border. When will Democrats put America first and end the gift giving to Ukraine? They, as I just said, have since deleted that. But what do you think of that initial statement and this idea that we're giving money and weapons to Ukraine? Well, I, I think that, you know, first of all, obviously Putin should not have invaded Ukraine. And I think all of us look at the incredible bravery of the Ukrainian fighters and say, wow, amazing what they've been able to do, and hopefully they're able to continue to do it. Uh, at the same time, I, I definitely look at all the problems that we have in our country and say, you know, are we really expected to, to fund Ukraine to the tune of billions of dollars every month indefinitely? Eventually, uh, we, we have to actually focus on our own problems. And 
that's definitely where I've been. That's where I've been really from the beginning of this conflict is saying that, you know, the president needs to articulate clearly what is in America's best interest here? What are we funding? Why are we funding it? We can't just keep shoveling money to that country while we've got our own problems. It doesn't mean we don't want them to win. and It doesn't mean we don't admire them for what they're doing. Uh, but there are a lot of countries across the world that we admire. I don't think that we can send all of them billions of dollars every month. But what about the threat that we keep hearing that Russia poses, that if we don't keep helping Ukraine, that Vladimir Putin would maybe advance beyond Ukraine or take this fight in a, in a bigger yeah. way and make it broader? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a very fair argument. But I think, it, you know, Russia certainly poses a threat to Ukraine. And Russia certainly poses a threat to Germany and a lot of countries in Western Europe, which is why I think the Germans and others should be honing up a little bit more of the bill here. Uh, this is one of the big issues with this entire conflict is, I mean, Germany has no real defense to speak of. They have no energy policy, no independence when it comes to their own resources. They effectively have depended on the United States to fund a proxy war that benefits Germany much more than it does the United States. Uh, so I, I think actually just the fact that Putin could go beyond the borders of Ukraine is an argument for the Europeans to step up, which so far they've been unwilling to do. Finally, I understand you're not much into polling, <laughs> but um, as we do look at the polling, it does seem to be that you're in a tight race. And, um, you know, the Senate's balance of power is, I, I guess you can't get any closer. Uh, all the GOP needs sure. is one win. Um, what sort of pressure do you feel right now? And are you surprised that it's so tight, given that we've been told how red Ohio is? You know, I don't feel pressure. I mean, I feel pressure to win because we have to win this. And I think the people of Ohio deserve a good senator, and so I feel pressure to win and, and give it to them. Um, you know, I do look. I'm I'm very skeptical of public polling, especially this far out. If you look in the past, Ohio has historically been a terribly polled state. Donald Trump was supposed to lose to Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump was supposed to lose to Joe Biden. Of course, he won by eight and a half points uh, each time. So I'm I'm highly skeptical of the media narrative that this race is super close. I think what Tim Ryan has done effectively is run away from his record. Uh, he certainly has tried to persuade people that he's a moderate or even a conservative, even though his record is that he's a rubber stamp. And so do we have the task of ensuring that people know who Tim Ryan is? We absolutely have that task. And I think that we're executing it well. Uh, we'll continue to execute it well. And because of that, I think we're going to win this race. And I think we're going to win it comfortably. Ohio Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Supreme Court is back in session. New term, new cases, and a new justice. Isn't the issue what Congress would have intended? That was the first question Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson asked at her first hearing Monday in a case that challenges how far the Environmental Protection Agency can go with regulations under the Clean Water Act. Just days after a ceremony <laughs> welcoming Jackson to the Supreme Court. At long last, an African-American woman. It was pretty exciting. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi 
was not so happy with the court back in June. The radical Supreme Court is eviscerating Americans' rights and endangering their health and safety. That was the morning of the court's ruling that undid a woman's legal right to abortion in favor of states' rights to ban or restrict the procedure. But the Congress will continue to act. Uh, to overcome this extremism and, pro- extremism and protect the American people. The Democrats have made that issue number one, trying to keep control of the House and Senate in the midterm elections as polls show more people disapprove of the court. Well, these are difficult times for the court. Jonathan Turley is a professor at George Washington University Law School and a Fox News contributor. I spoke recently at the Tenth Circuit Judicial Conference, and Chief Justice Roberts was also speaking at the conference. And he lamented how difficult the last year has been. We had an attempted assassination of Justice Kavanaugh. We've had a leak of a major opinion, which is still under investigation. And of course, we've had all of this anger directed towards the justices, including protests at their homes. And what he objected to was that instead of disagreeing with their interpretation, people are challenging their integrity. And of course, he's right. It's not surprising that the court has gone down in polling. It's been the unrelenting target of legal experts and media. Uh, The court is not as described, you know, as as these people who are putting their personal interests or political interests before precedent. You know, under Earl Warren, the court set aside many cases for relatively liberal holdings. Uh, About a dozen of those major rulings came out of the Warren court. Nobody questioned the integrity of the justices to the extent that they're doing today. Uh, They celebrated those decisions. But uh, one of the things that people say over and over again, though, is that what the court did was take away a woman's right that was established and had been the the way it was for 50 years. That's what the central argument is. That is, and they did take away the constitutional right because they found that the right doesn't exist in the Constitution. I think what the conservative justices would note is, first of all, Roe was not the rule that was followed for 50 years. It was gutted by Casey. There was very little left of Roe. So the liberal majority found Roe unconvincing in terms of its rationale, changed the rationale in Casey. But Roe was continually, the issue of abortion was continually the subject of 5-4 rulings. You know, the conservative justices were very consistent throughout that period, saying that they don't see that right in the Constitution. And so I think it's unfair for people to say that suddenly the court just changed directions. You know, this has been a contested area of constitutional law for 50 years. Okay. We have a new term now, a new bunch of new issues on the agenda. The New York Times headline, as new term starts, Supreme Court is poised to resume rightward push. So there are issues that are on this docket for this term. What issues do you think they'll have a rightward push to if the Times is correct in, in, in their assumption? 
This last term showed that the court was bringing bright line rules or greater clarity to areas. So we're going to see that in the coming term, and I expect the rage against the court is likely to grow on the left. One of the most important issues will deal with race in college admissions. There are two cases there, one from Harvard, one from North Carolina. Um, It actually deals with discrimination against Asian applicants uh, to achieve greater diversity for other minorities. This is an area that has been really a muddle for the court. It is a long line of conflicting, vague 5-4 rulings. Um, They now have a majority to bring some clarity. Another very important case, probably my favorite case of the docket, is 303 Creative versus Alanis. Okay. Now, this is a case which you can almost call Masterpiece Cake Shop 2.0. Uh, that was a case involving a baker who refused to make oh, a wedding right. for a season. Right, the Colorado baker who, right, who, and didn't he sort, didn't he have a victory in the court to a degree? He did, but only to a degree. They essentially took a exit ramp and did not deal with the underlying issue very clearly. Many of us, not many of us, but some of us at the time have argued that these types of cases should not be resolved under the religion clauses, but instead should be dealt with as a matter of free speech. Okay. What's notable about this case is that when the court accepted 303 Creative, it came up under both the religion and free speech claims, but the court only accepted it under the free speech claim. Is it the same case? Is it the same Colorado Baker? Is it a different case? No, no, no. 303 Creative involves a website designer who has the same objection to doing websites. And so it's Masterpiece Cake Shop 2.0, only in the sense that this case is likely to answer the questions left unanswered in Masterpiece. So again, it's same-sex marriage objection. Yes, and a religious-based objection. There's also an, an enormously important case called Moore versus Harper. This is a challenge to the authority of state courts to set aside congressional maps in North Carolina. What is important about this is the underlying theory. That is, the theory of the legislators is that state courts have no authority to change congressional maps because the elections and elector clauses of the Constitution only talk about, quote, legislatures, close quote, setting those parameters. So that could have a very significant impact on districting, et cetera. Okay. On Tuesday, Professor, the justices will hear the arguments in a case out of Alabama, and this deals with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So this is going to be another one that's watched closely. What's at stake here? Well, the Supreme Court has in the last few years, narrowed uh, the Voting Rights Act and its application to states that were long subject to pre-approval by the Department of Justice. And this case will explore further what the federal authority over states remains under the Act. But there's also a couple of, of interesting cases in addition that shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, One is a case called Halen versus Bracken. That's an interesting case because the court's going to decide whether placement preferences based on race are constitutional. This is under the Indian Child Welfare Act. 
and essentially stipulates that Indian children or Native American children would go to Native American families. There's also some more fun cases, if you can consider uh, fair <laughs> use doctrine fun. Okay. And that's the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith case. This is one of my favorites. It deals with whether a work of art is considered transformative for the purposes of the fair use doctrine when it expresses a dissimilar meaning or message. So in this case, you had someone who was, uh, um, involves a photo of the musician, the late musician, Prince. And the question is, to what extent can you take a photo and sort of make it your own and not be subject to this type of copyright or trademark type of litigation? And, and you know, we're getting into an era where people are making all kinds of digital art and, and, and you know, I don't know if this court is going to get into that, but those kinds of issues will come soon, I imagine, too. Uh, the copyright and trademark laws have largely been written by lobbyists for companies like Disney, and they are extremely draconian. And people have faced ruinous litigation by these firms that crank out thousands of complaints every year. Cases like this are very important for people who feel that our laws are beginning to stop creativity, which is what they're supposed to be protecting. All right, let's get back to the new justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. I commit to you that I will work productively to support and defend the Constitution. She told senators at her confirmation hearing in March she will remain independent. She replaces the retired Stephen Breyer and takes his place as part of the three considered on the left in the court's 6-3 tilt to the right. It doesn't change the court in terms of its ideological division. Um, it also doesn't change it in one important respect, uh, which is why Justice Jackson is a welcomed addition. Justice Breyer was well known as someone who believed deeply in the court in its collegiality. And he really worked hard to maintain that sense of belonging among the nine. In reality, when you talk to these justices, I think they honestly say that they have really good relationships. They have sharp disagreements, but good relationships. Breyer was known as part of that. I think Jackson will be too. She has a wonderful personality. She's very engaging. I think that she may even be further to the left than Breyer, uh, even though Breyer was pretty far to the left. Um, she's going to be closer to Sotomayor, is my guess, in her voting pattern. But I think that she will bring Breyer's collegiality to the court, and, and the court needs that. Justice Roberts, you, refer you referenced him earlier, the Chief Justice. He didn't want to go as far as the other justices when it came to Dobbs and that big abortion case last term. What does that mean for his relationship with the other justices who were on the right? There's not a gravitational pull from Roberts. Uh, and Dobbs really showed that. Um, he did not even succeed in getting Kavanaugh, who votes with Roberts over 90% of the time, I think if there's a swing on the court, it may be the combo of Roberts and Kavanaugh. When they're together, they are a swing, and they've often made the difference in voting with their liberal colleagues. I think that the last year for Roberts has been terribly traumatic because of his love for the court. Jonathan Turley, constitutional scholar, professor, George Washington University Law School, Fox News contributor. Always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Subscribe to this podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Lahren. What's on your mind? In the aftermath of catastrophic weather events, some use the destruction, disarray, and instability to take advantage of stores, businesses, and homes, but not on Governor Ron DeSantis' watch. In a press conference, he made it very clear, you will not get away with looting in the state of Florida. DeSantis warned that law enforcement is on high alert and, for good measure, reminded folks that Florida is a Second Amendment state. The Lee County Sheriff echoed the governor, saying there will be zero tolerance for those looking to take advantage of others. You will be hunted down and you will go to jail. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what leadership looks and sounds like. Imagine if that was a sentiment delivered during the Summer of Love 2020 riot season. No looting will be tolerated, no destruction, no violence. That would have been nice, right? Governor DeSantis has proven time and time again he is America's governor in Florida. You should be proud. I'm Tommy Lahren. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.